So I look at that picture. I think of the path of my life. And so I walk with my granddaughter down the path of life, and I, I think about the future. And you look at the front of your worship folder. Each one of us looks for something we can trust in. In a world of constant change, we think of what lies ahead, and we wonder. But Isaiah tells us that we don't need to wonder. I trust you, Lord. You see the light beaming through there, and you think of the path, and we can't really see where it goes. We're confident that God's on the other side. I wonder if it was nighttime, what would that path look like? To have it illuminated by God who is certain of the future. And to know that I'll be on the path for not nearly as long as my granddaughter. What lies ahead for her? Oh my goodness, I can't even imagine. And most people in the world do not know that God can be trusted. Are you praying for this generation? Oh, I pray you are. As I release them to the teachers who've prepared for them. Father, I thank you that I send my granddaughter and the rest of these kids off to people who understand and know that there is a certain future, that that future is lit by the truth of your word, by the truth of your presence, by who you are, a constant certainty. Because truthfully, as I watch the news and as I look at what lies ahead, it would bring great angst for me if I didn't know for certain that it was held in your hand. So God, as we open your word today, speak to us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're going to be in Isaiah again today. If you've been doing the reading this summer, you'll know that we're in Isaiah, and uh, we're in chapter 24 and 25, and that's where we're going to be today is in Isaiah chapter 25. I'd encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and, and look at that along with me. If you didn't happen to bring one or you don't have one, there's one near you or in front of you. And if you don't have one, I'd encourage you to take the one that you take from here and take it home and read it and wear it out, and you will be glad that you did. At 12.11 this morning in Florida, Casey Anthony was released from prison. And uh, there was a crowd waiting outside the, the jail, protesting and, and crying for justice, demanding that justice be done. As she was released, they all wondered if justice had been served by the courts and if they had gotten it right. As I thought about that, I understand that that jury made a decision based on the information they had. And people have been making decisions based on the information they have in the case. But truthfully, our information is limited. 
But inside of all of us is this deep desire and this deep need to know that justice has been done. And could I suggest that that's part of the image of God in us? Because God requires justice, and we're made in the image of God. And so that need for justice is part of God's image revealed in us. And as we think about justice, and we think about the future, and we think about what could it be possibly that waits for us, Isaiah does a wonderful job of explaining that to us. And today, as we think of drawing near to God because he holds the future, it's important that God has a certain hope for the future. God has a certain hope for the future. And as I, as I considered that this week, and as I've been in Isaiah, it's been fascinating to be in there. And I, I hope that you've been able to read along in the Digging Deeper and then in the, in the readings for the, for the week. And, and as you've examined Isaiah looking and as he brings judgment and the hope and judgment and the hope and judgment and the hope as he follows the commission that he received from God in chapter 6 that we looked at last week. He is revealing this certain hope for the future. And chapter 25 is a fascinating chapter. And I pray that as we go through that today that you'll understand it and perhaps God will speak to it in a way that he never has before. Isaiah chapter 25 is interesting because it, it almost could be considered a psalm. As we think of Isaiah and the way he wrote, there were certain different, different ways that he wrote within this book. But this chapter almost seems like a psalm. And if you read Psalms regularly, you know that there's times when in the Psalms, uh, David and others slip out of past tense into present tense, and they slip out of third person into first person, and, and it's almost like this winding conversation. And that's what chapter 25 is. And, and what's amazing is this call that God has placed on Isaiah's life, the commission that he receives from God in chapter 6 has enabled him and, and God has empowered him with the ability to see the future. He has become a prophet of God where God reveals to him things that will happen in the future. And as we start in chapter 25, he's speaking of things that will happen in, in the future, but he's speaking of them as if they had already happened because they're so certain to take place that he can speak to them as if they've already happened. Fascinating. Could you imagine being empowered and, 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 and equipped by God to be able to do that? Because you see, God, we understand, is all present, right? He's, he's omnipresent. We understand that, don't we? Nah, we don't understand it at all. We understand the concept of it, that he's everywhere all the time. But he's everywhere in time as well. So he's here. At the same time, he's on the cross. At the same time, he's a thousand years from now. He's everywhere in time as well as everywhere in space. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? So for God, the same thing that's happening now is, is happening at the same time a thousand years from now. We're, he's not limited by time as we are. So that's what allows us to be certain that God holds the hope for the future. Because only God is in the future right now. Does that make sense? First of all, we see that his faithfulness is perfect. 
If we're going to, if we're going to place our trust in God, and, and that's what Isaiah is one of his big ideas in this whole book, as you're reading it, you're probably saying, I can't imagine why we have to go through all these different judgments that happen on all these nations and everything, and all the, the violence that seems to be in this book. You can't understand. What Isaiah is trying to help the people understand and, and what he's revealing to them is the fact that there is nothing that can be trusted in other than God. And that's kind of what we're going to be looking at here today. Nothing can be trusted in other than God for our eternal security. His faithfulness is perfect. The first verse, O Lord, Isaiah says, you're my God. I will exalt you and I praise your name for in perfect faithfulness, you have done marvelous things, things planned long ago. I love that. God has done marvelous things, and they're things that he planned long ago. God's not surprised by anything. Do you know that before he even began laying the foundation of the earth, he looked ahead and knew you would be here this morning and where you would be sitting and who you'd be sitting by and how far you'd come to get here. God has planned things, marvelous things. And some of the things that Isaiah are going to talk about, as I said, are things that haven't happened yet. And he's celebrating that you've done marvelous things that haven't happened yet. But they're things that are planned long ago. But God has also done marvelous things in each one of our lives individually. And what, what Isaiah indicates to us here is that if we're going to celebrate this perfect faithfulness of God, and if we're going to put our trust in God, who holds the future and who has a certain hold on the future, we have to know that he's trustworthy. And, and a, a good way for us in our finite minds to get a hold of the fact that God is trustworthy is to celebrate and recognize the marvelous things he's done in our life up till now and to realize that he planned those things long ago. Now, what we want to be careful of is that we don't slip into the, the place where the only things that we describe as marvelous things that God has done in our lives as being things that feel good. Because that's kind of what we do, isn't it? If they're marvelous things that God has done for us, then they must be things that feel good. Because, after all, a, a good God would only do good things. Well, if you're a parent, you know that sometimes you do marvelous things for your kids that they don't think are all that marvelous, right? And maybe you're saying, I can't relate to that. Well, maybe you were a kid and your parents did some marvelous things for you that you didn't think were all that marvelous. Because you see, as, as loving parents, as parents who are trying desperately to, to invest in our kids, what we do is we we make marvelous things happen for them, but their perspective is a little different than ours. That's how it is with God. Sometimes God has to allow or even bring things into our lives that may not feel all that marvelous, but he knows that those things will bring us to the point where we need to be. So, his faithfulness is perfect. If I, if I can list those marvelous things, it helps me to celebrate his faithfulness in my life. So in what ways am I able to praise God for the marvelous things he's done? And, and here's another question. Am I able to say that he's my God? Because that's how Isaiah starts this. He says, oh Lord, you're my God. And, and I wonder, is he your God? Or is he a God? See, because he longs to be your God. 
Are you able to say that God is your God? Have you a personal relationship with the God of the universe who has revealed himself in creation? Secondly, if we, are, if we are to grab hold of this truth that God has a certain hope for the future, his faithfulness is perfect, but then we see that his sovereignty is sure. His sovereignty is sure. And do you see it in these verses? Starting with two. You've made the city a heap of rubble. The fortified town a ruin. And you're thinking, well, what city? Well, in, in Isaiah, as he talks about the city, what's he, what he's talking about are, are the the things that we've created, could I say it that way? The cities that we've built, the, the empires that we've put together, the, the things that we've placed our trust in, the, the political entities that we have. It's, it's a figurative term for the city. It's whatever we've made that we've put our trust and our faith in as opposed to putting it in him, our self-achievements our self-centered interests. So, he has made that city a heap of rubble, the fortified town a ruin, the foreigner stronghold a city no more, it will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will honor you and the city of ruthless nations will revere you. For you have been a a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy, a shelter from the storm, and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm driving against the warm of the wall and like the heat of the desert. You silence the uproar of the foreigners as the heat is reduced by the shadow of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is still. In just a few verses, Isaiah gives us a glimpse into this future where everything that has been trusted in other than God is brought to rubble. All the things that we've placed our trust into are brought to rubble because God is sovereign. Those walls have been brought down. It says strong peoples will honor you and ruthless nations will revere you. Could I suggest to you that 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 word revere is actually the fear, fear of the Lord, that ruthless nations will finally fear the Lord. But this this is what... What Paul alludes to in, in, in Philippians where he says every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord. You see, this is, a, this is not a willing honoring and a willing reverence, but rather this is one that's brought about because of the presence of the Lord. All of a sudden, God is going to appear into all those things that we've placed our trust in and he's going to bring them to rubble and everybody's going to say, well, you are God. There is a fear. Because God is over all. He's sovereign. Do you see he's been a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy? In chapter 28, Isaiah talks, he goes back again and he says there in verse 15, for we have made a lie our refuge and falsehood our hiding place. Here's what happens. Satan loves for us to believe that the temporary things, the things that we can see are the only things that we can trust in. That's a lie. It's an illusion. The temporary things of this world can only bring us temporary security. Boy, I, I know that's hard. that's hard for us because we have temporary needs. We have, we have this, this desire, and, 
And evermore, in America, it gets a lot harder to put those needs off. We have a, a sense of instant gratification. We need things quickly, and we need them completely. And, and so it, it gets really easy for us to grab onto those things. And, and when we're starting to feel a little insecure, we go to things that will help us to feel secure. And these can be, these can be finances, it can be relationships, it can be, um, you know, it, it can be all sorts of different things in our lives that we run to and we trust for our security. What is it that makes me feel secure? And Isaiah says, all of those things are under God and all of them will be destroyed because the only f place to find refuge is in God. So, another question. Is there anything I feel that's outside of God's control and am I trusting in anything other than him? Because all of the things that are temporary are under the control of God and if we place our trust in them, we're missing placing our trust in God. So finally, as we go, Eric, continuing on, his celebration is eternal, we see in 6 through 8. There is an eternal celebration to be had for us. A lot of times we talk about that. We have a fascination with the end times. I have a lot of times people say, can we, can we study Revelation? I'd love to know what's going to happen. And, and I'd love to know what's waiting for me. And that's so important. Because this world isn't our home. Those of us who've trusted Christ understand there's something much better waiting for us. And Isaiah talks about that here. On this mountain. Which mountain? Well, that goes back to the last verse of 24. The moon will be abashed, the sun ashamed, for the Lord Almighty will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before its elders gloriously. Amen. I don't know about you, but that verse just brings this whole rush of excitement to me. The sun ashamed because of the brightness of being in the presence of God. Forever. I'm Mount Zion. And we think of that. That's the mountain of God. Mount Zion. A new Jerusalem. A new heaven. A new earth prepared for us. And on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. Do you long for that? Do you long for heaven? Do you long for that moment when you're going to see God for who he is? But this is talking about the banquet, the wedding banquet. Could I ask you to turn in the back of your Bible to Revelation chapter 19? Revelation chapter 19. Just about to the very end of your Bible. Revelation 19, verse 9, it said, it says this, it says, Then the angel said to me, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. Then if we turn over to, to chapter 21. 21, 1 through 5. I saw a new heaven, new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, 
the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. No more death, mourning, crying, pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He was seated on the throne, said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. There's an eternal celebration. There's an eternal home. There's a new heaven, a new earth that's waiting for us. There's a wedding feast for us, the bride of Christ. It's amazing to even consider when he tries to describe it, Isaiah, and he talks about the rich food and, and the aged wine and the best of meats and the finest of wines. The, the illustration here is that anything we've been waiting for and anything that we've had that we've trusted in is just a mere shadow compared to what's waiting for us. If you're familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, you know that C.S. Lewis tries to describe this in the final book. And we begin to think of what it could look like, but I think the one thing that, that Isaiah does such a wonderful job of here is he really points out that death is swallowed up forever. Death is swallowed up forever. Victory over the death. See, we each know that death waits for us. We each understand that. We're certain of that. But death is eliminated in this final celebration. And it's interesting because the celebration is universal. You see, all peoples, all nations, all faces, the peoples are ethnic groups, the, the nations are political groups, and those faces represent the individuals. Each one of us able to be part of this celebration because of an invitation. See, judgment and destruction, as Isaiah's been presenting this, and you know that's the message that God sent him to, to proclaim, and in a way, it's the message that we're to proclaim as well, that sin has brought about destruction, that death is certain because of sin. But death and destruction are not God's final intended words. Could I ask you to look at Ezekiel? It's a little bit towards the back, just a couple pages beyond Isaiah, a couple of books. Ezekiel, chapter 18. And there in Ezekiel, there's some, some really interesting verses. And, and God's talking to Israel here. But we can learn his heart as he talks to Israel. Because he has the same heart towards us. Therefore, O house of Israel, I will judge you. I'm sorry, I didn't tell you where I was reading. I'm in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 30. That will be helpful for you. Verse 30 of chapter 18. Therefore, O house of Israel, I will judge you, each one according to his ways, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent, turn away from all of your offenses, then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourself of all the offenses you've committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. 
Take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. God longs for us to experience repentance. He longs for the relationship that he's designed for us to have with him to be restored. And he makes it so clear for the house of Israel. And he's done that through Isaiah to help them understand that any of the things that they've been placing their trust in other than him are only bringing them harm. So question, in what ways can I embrace the certain eternal promise of God and in so doing, release the temporary illusion? See, we need to focus on this eternal celebration we have so that we can understand how to live in this temporary world. If we're holding on to temporary things for our hope and our trust, then those things will be eliminated and they'll fall short of what we need. It says that he'll remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. Remove the disgrace of his people. Have you been rescued from your sin? In Joshua, God speaks about removing the reproach of Egypt from the Israelites. Removing the reproach of Egypt. And I think of that when I think of this verse, the disgrace of his people. That, that the very scars of having been in the captivity of sin will be gone. That that disgrace will be gone from us. That reproach will be gone from us. There won't be anything that would, would try to draw us back into that bondage that we've been in before. The next thing we see is that God's salvation, his salvation brings joy. In that day, they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord we trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. I love this verse. This verse is incredible and it's so big. And so I want to look at it for just a few minutes. Surely this is our God. Surely this is our God. See, that moment when we're in God's presence, we're going to look and we're going to say, surely this is our God, because we're going to see God with no sin in the way. We're going to see God as he is. We're going to, we're going to see Jesus with no sin in between us and him, with no, with no misunderstanding. We're going to be able to see him as he is, and we're going to say, this is our God. The things that we, we thought, oh, and we get a glimpse here. God gives us glimpses and he gives us little ideas of what he is, but we're going to see him in so much more fullness and we're going to be able to say, this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. See, each one of us understands and knows God's, God has placed eternity in the hearts of men and each of us knows for absolute certain that we're going to face death. And each of us knows that we need to be saved. At some place, in some part of us, we know that we need saving. And each person grabs onto something to save them. Each person trusts in something to save them. Because a person who needs to be saved has to trust in the thing that's saving them. All right? So if you were drowning and someone came, you would have to trust that that person would be saving you. And here it says, we trusted in him. This is the Lord, we trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. 
If we look back in the psalm, if we look at Psalms 33, Psalm 33, there's a couple of verses in there that are very interesting in Psalms, Psalm 33. As Isaiah is speaking to the people and as he's, as he's prophesying, as God has told him to, what he's trying to reveal to them is that anything that they trust in to save them other than God will fall short. And at the time that Isaiah is writing, there's a real threat from Syria, Assyria. And Judah is definitely afraid that Assyria is going to come and take them over. And, and they feel like they need to be saved from that. And, and Isaiah is trying to help them understand that the only way that they can be saved is if they trust in God. God is their salvation. See, God brought them into a place in the world that's very, very small. And, and as, as you go to Israel, you see how incredibly small that nation is. And you see all of their enemies all around them. And you wonder, how in the world can this place ever survive? And it's God's hand that saves them. And he put them in a place where they would recognize that it's his hand that saved them. But what Israel was doing was they were trying to make pacts and, and agreements with the other nations around them. They were going to Israel, and I'm sorry, they're going to Egypt, and, and, and all over trying to make deals to build up their army so their army could be strong enough to stand against Assyria when it came in. Psalm 33, verse 13. From heaven the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling place he watches all who live on earth. You ever think God's not paying attention to what you do? Aren't those two verses amazing? But wait, it gets better. He who forms the heart of all, who considers everything they do. God considers everything you do. Everything I do. Everything every single person does. He's watching and he's considering what you do. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its strength, it cannot save. You see, no matter what we build up for ourselves, no matter what we, what we acquire for ourselves, no matter what we try to put aside so that we can be certain of a future, no matter what we put our hope and our trust into, it cannot save us. And Israel was going to find that out. Judah was going to find that out. They were going to find out that no matter how big of an army they amassed, that once God had determined that they were going to fall, they were going to fall because the only thing that could save them was him. And because they wouldn't put their trust in him, they fell apart from him. Are you putting your trust in horses? Because horses are a vain source for hope. If we put the trust in God, we can be sure of a salvation that brings joy. But what we seek is a salvation that brings happiness. And the difference is, is really quite amazing because happiness is a temporary fleeting thing. And so when I put my trust in something that brings happiness, then after a while it doesn't make me happy anymore, so then I need something else to make me happy. Has that happened to anybody else? Don't raise your hands. I'll, I'll be the only one. Okay. And so we continually look for things that we think will save us from our dissatisfaction, from our hopelessness, from our... And so many times the things that we look for, look to are things that wound us. And it's interesting because those things that wound us are actually the place that we try to go back to over and over and over and over 
hoping that we can experience salvation if we just get it right the next time. Expectations of people, whatever it may be. So when we stop to think, is there anything in my life in which I place my trust other than God? And what steps do I need to take to eliminate those things? So is there anything you run to for trust other than God? Because only salvation from God can bring joy. And then finally, we see that his justice will stand. His justice will stand. The hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, verse 10, but Moab will be trampled under him, under his foot, literally. As straw is trampled down in the manure, they will spread out their hands in it, as a swimmer spreads out his hands to swim. God will bring down their pride. Despite the cleverness of their hands, he will bring down your high fortified walls and lay them low. He will bring them down to the ground, to the very dust. God's justice will stand. It's absolutely certain that it's coming because, listen, in order for there to be the celebration of our presence with him eternally in heaven, apart from any sort of sin, apart from any sort of evil or wickedness, evil and wickedness and sin have to be done away with. Judgment and justice has to come against those things. And they have to be eliminated. And so justice must come. And the thing to realize is that we will naturally choose judgment. We will naturally choose judgment and justice to come upon us. And you say, wait a minute, what does that mean? Listen, your natural person, who you are, is totally depraved. You might think, oh, I'm not that bad. Yeah, you are. That's what Scripture says. In yourself, you don't want to please God. You don't try to please God. You can't please God. In your natural self, it's not possible. See, that's the fall. That's the curse that came from the fall. And so, naturally, we choose this hand of justice. Naturally, we'll trust in things other than God. We'll naturally try to find things that will bring us salvation other than him. But, supernaturally, God enters our lives. Through a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, God enters our lives. When we recognize that Jesus came and died and paid the penalty for our sin, so that we could be freed from the judgment and the justice that we have, have chosen and actually embraced. We can be confident that we have eternity with him. And as we see that justice stands, as we see that pride will finally be abolished, and graphically, Isaiah says, like straw in manure, that's where your pride, all your achievements are going to be like straw in manure. Ugh. All your achievements, rubble. And, and here's the swimmer, you know, and swimmers are independent people, you know. I mean, you don't see swimmers, like, carrying someone on them to help them, okay? Swimmers are independent people. And, and so a proud person continues to swim in the manure, trying to make their, their pride seem enough for God. Very graphic. But it will be eliminated and it will turn to rubble. And it's going to happen to real people. And it has to happen 
Exodus 34. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. I'll read it to you quick here. The Lord, the Lord, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. See, that's God, right? Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. The last half isn't quite as pleasant as the first half, is it? See, the judgment... Question, how does knowing that God will bring justice in his time bring me patience in my situation? And how does it motivate me to reach the lost? When we think of judgment and we think of justice, it can be very, very uncomfortable. But see, at 12.11 this morning, when when Casey Anthony was released, a lot of people were, were demanding justice. And a lot of people still think that justice hasn't been served. And they're probably right. Because Kaylee Anthony is dead. But God holds that judgment in his hand. That justice is held in his hand. Because you see, Only God knows everything about everything and every heart and every thought and every action and every, only God knows that and only God can just, can justly judge. So as we think of the fact that justice has to happen in order for our eternity to be secure, in order for us to hold on to the hope that we have for a certain eternity and a certain celebration with God, that unbelievable salvation that's available, There has to be judgment against sin. Now, you'll remember when Isaiah was commissioned and God said, who who will go for us? And he said, send me. And God said, okay, here's the message. I am a God to be feared. I am a God that requires that that, that there be awe for me. I will not share my glory with another and I will judge anything that stands opposed to me. And it wasn't a real popular message because people like trusting in things other than God. But it doesn't stop us from the message that God is a just God, but he is compassionate and he's kind and he's loving and he longs for each one of us to be freed from the certain justice that comes on us. So what do we do with this message, the so what? Last week I asked you if you're if you have three people that you know who don't know Jesus, to think of those three people and to ask yourself, is it possible that God is asking you, will you go tell them for us? So I ask you again, those three people that you know who don't know Jesus, they are, they are absolutely certain to fall under the judgment Will you go tell them for Jesus that they don't have to be under his judgment, that they can experience salvation? 
Maybe for you. Maybe you're here and, and you've never heard this before. Today is the day that you can choose Christ as your Savior and be freed from that judgment and have a new heart and a new life. God, I thank you for who you are, for the fact that you are in the future, that you know the future, that the future is held secure. And this chapter, Lord, is a chapter of, of great hope. It is. It's a, a certain hope of an incredible banquet that we will have with you forever, that we will be in your presence, that you will be our God, and that we will be your people, and that we can be absolutely certain of that. But Lord, your, your certain salvation requires judgment against those who don't accept it. And that's the other side of that coin. And it's a side that gets uncomfortable for us. And it's a side that lets us take our salvation lightly. So God, I pray that you look at each of our hearts. Is there anything that we're trusting in other than you? Help us to put it off so that we can have you fully in our lives. And God, is there anybody we know who is going to fall under this justice? Please, God, boldness for us, I pray. In Jesus' name.